Well, there are a few doctrines in all of Scripture that Scripture is very clear and in no uncertain terms has declared to us that if this particular doctrine is not true, then our entire faith is in vain. And of course, I'm talking about the doctrine of the resurrection, and today uh, I am joined once again by uh, Mike Tiemann, who is a pastor of, uh, he pastors at the Rock Community Church in Anaheim Hills, California, and Mike is here uh, to discuss with me this super important doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection and why it is so important to our Christian life, everything from the heavy theology of the resurrection, but all the way also to the practical implications of the resurrection. So anyway, Mike, good to see you again, brother. What up, Emilio? It's good to be back here. Good to be it's been, with you it's been a while. Yeah, it's good to be back here. And the resurrection, I mean, you can't get a more central, important doctrine that if if it didn't exist, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, exactly right. And so we want to start off just talking about the centrality. Centrality. I, I had a I had a professor in a theology class, and he actually tried to convince the class that the resurrection wasn't significant and important. Not that the event didn't take place, but as far as our theology was concerned, and the class just did a coup. It was it was incredible. The class kind of uproared, but of course, a bunch of you know young adult teenagers, you know, type thing, and and uh, it caused quite the quite the uh, stink in the on the campus, and and that that centrality, the focal point <laughs> of Christianity. Uh, Calvin says, you know, the resurrection is the most important article of our faith. So, Emilio, why don't you start it off? What, what why mm. why is the resurrection so central? To our hope. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, of course, because, you know, uh, this goes back, of course, to the fall of mankind into sin. And uh, because we're living in a fallen world, because we're living in a sinful world, there needs to be a way for us to literally escape from this world or to be removed from this world in a way where life is preserved and in a way in which we can, in a sense, overcome this world, this life, this age, this realm. And that's exactly what the resurrection does. The resurrection assures us that there is, in fact, a path for man to be elevated above this world. There is a path for man to, to, to realize um, eternal life, to realize uh, life in a, in a in a higher quality of life, in a higher realm, in a different world, which of course now we understand to be the new heavens and the new earth. And so then the resurrection becomes the pathway of life. It becomes the very capstone of our faith because we understand that the resurrection, really, obviously there's two resurrections in the Bible in the sense that there is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then there is the resurrection of, or what's known as the general resurrection of believers and unbelievers alike that are resurrected under judgment, uh, either to go to heaven or to hell. But um, we understand, therefore, that the resurrection becomes absolutely central to every aspect of the Christian faith because it is its, its capstone. It is the climax. It is Jesus Christ being resurrected after his work of redemption so that Jesus is resurrected 
as an act that approves everything that he did his entire life. I mean, we think about what Jesus did, not only in his death on the cross, but his entire life of perfect active obedience to the will and the law of God and the, and the work that the Father had given him to do is then confirmed and approved and accepted by the Father upon that resurrection. And in that resurrection, Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God so that he has entered into a different mode of being himself in the sense that he has gone from humility to exaltation, to glory, as he sits at the right hand of God. And so uh, the resurrection really stands as the access of how we understand our translation from this age to the age to come, from this world to the world that, that God is creating in a new creation. So something like that becomes very important. And just really, I mean, I think we need to just mention even the obvious, Mike, that the resurrection gives us hope beyond the grave. I mean, it conquers death. You know, obviously the classic statement by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, as he's uh, referring back to the book of Isaiah and talking about how through the resurrection of Jesus, we have, we have, we have come to realize what Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 25 when he talked about death being swallowed up. So it, the resurrection is the hope of mankind, and it cannot be overstated that the resurrection is our absolute hope because death is our absolute enemy. So something like that. Yeah, I so appreciate how you how you frame that. Is there's there's two topics. There's the resurrection of Christ, and then there's the resurrection of us, right? The the Christians, and and the first allows the second. The first gives 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 authority to the second, confidence to the second. We're going to spend some time in First Corinthians later, but let me just kind of read some some text here for us. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse fourteen says, "And if Christ has not been raised." Then our preaching is in vain, and our, our our faith was in vain, right? This was to the apostle Paul a uh, central issue. Uh, Peter in Acts chapter two, uh, <clears throat> verse thirty-one and thirty uh, through thirty-three, he says, "For Saul, you know, speaking there, for Saul and spoke about David. Sorry, uh, talking about David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ." That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He goes on in Acts 4, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus, uh, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. These topics of resurrection to the apostles were... We're at the, the, that was the bullseye. It was the central issue that if if this didn't happen, you think about the the claims they were. They saw it. These were eyewitnesses surrounded by people who were eyewitnesses saying this this happened in a historical context, and it was also prophesied for. And in our faith, this is the absolute cornerstone. But Emilio, there's there's some misunderstandings about the resurrection. There's mm-hmm. there's neglecting the resurrection. Uh, and it's important for us to understand uh, the doctrine of the resurrection in the in the person and the work of Christ. So why don't you kind of introduce your your thoughts in that that context? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
You know, when we're thinking about the resurrection being misunderstood, I think that one of the reasons why it's been misunderstood is because for a long time, the resurrection has been treated as something that we banter back and forth in terms of apologetics. We have to try to prove the the validity of the resurrection. We have to try to establish that a historical resurrection actually happened. But a lot of times within that apologetical realm, you lose the actual theological backdrop of the resurrection. That the resurrection is not some some piece of data that we need to try to uh, prove or establish or that we need to try to uh, solidify in some scientific or historical fashion. But in fact, the resurrection is above everything a theological construct. It is a theological issue. It is a doctrine. And in that way, the resurrection can also be neglected when we don't understand that the resurrection plays a part in all of Christian theology. And here again, we have to talk about the resurrection as that which uh, symbolizes Christ in his dual estates, to recognize that the reason why the resurrection is at the very heart of the gospel is because the gospel, according to Jesus, the apostles, and all over the place, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, verses 1 through 4. I memorized that because it's all 1 through 4, 1 through 4, 1 through 4. But the same exact theology is being taught there, and that is what is known as the dual estates of Christ. And it's important for us to recognize that the resurrection is tethered to the these dual estates, that there is no resurrection, there is no ascension, there is no glory, there is no exaltation, apart from his previous session, which is his session of humility and obedience and death and his passion and his, both his passive and active obedience there leading up to the cross and culminating in his resurrection. And so I just think it's important for us to situate the resurrection within these dual estates to understand that this is the gospel. You know, uh, Mike, if you go to Romans chapter 1, and the Apostle Paul begins by expounding what the gospel is. He talks about the gospel concerning God's Son. And all the way from verses 1 through 7, basically, there's, or, you know, uh, right before that, you know, uh, that's his opening, you know, to the Romans and such. But, you know, leading up to that, there's no mention of human beings. <laughs> so the gospel, before it becomes the gospel of repentance and faith and putting your trust in Jesus, the very, very first thing that Paul says there in Romans chapter 1 is that the gospel is concerning God's Son, and what does that concern? That concerns Jesus coming in the flesh as the Son of David, and then it concerns the Son of God being declared to be the Son of God in power. It's not being declared to be the Son of God for the first time, that's a mistake, but he is declared to be the Son of God in power, and now this power is according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection uh, from the dead. And literally there, from the dead, literally means from among the dead ones. And there we see that the gospel has to do with these dual estates, this coming in the flesh, which is a symbol of weakness, humility, 
and suffering and being resurrected in power. And so we can spend this entire time, Mike, just talking about how that the resurrection does nothing else but illustrate for us the dual estates of Christ. And to put it really simply, Peter says, this is the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Wow. Amen. Right? It says, Acts 2, it was impossible, right? Death could not hold him. I love, I think, when I, as you were talking, I was thinking of, of, what is it, John 10, right? The Father, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and I, have, I take it up again. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down accord, uh, of my own accord. I have authority to take it up again. And, I th- uh, it, you know, like, if, if we still have a dead Savior, we, we don't have a Savior. Right, if he did not have the authority, yeah. the 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 power to raise himself from the dead, well, I mean, good night, go home, you know, we're we're, we're done, right? And so, right. what Back a to your great, lives, nothing nothing to see here. Yeah, nothing nothing to see here, right? The apostles would have went home, right? They they were they were devastated at the cross, but a few days later, it came yeah. real to them, right? And so so let let's move the conversation forward. Uh, we, we've talked about the dual estates. We've talked about the centrality of Christ. We, we've dealt with some misunderstandings and stuff. Let's talk about the context of the Trinity in the resurrection. Uh, and we, we talked about, you know, in, well, in Jesus in yeah, John 10. Absolutely. Well, well, yeah, no, 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 that's right. But let me just say one more thing here, Mike, before we move on, because I would hate to overlook this, this point. And it, it backs up to something you said earlier about about the centrality of the resurrection and the book of Acts. Because people need to understand that in the book of Acts, the, the leading, the, the most foundational doctrine in the entire book of Acts is the resurrection. It's not election, it's not justification, it's not atonement. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that resurrection, it, it solidifies the apostles' message. Now that God has, you know, raised his son from the dead, we are assured that, uh, we are assured that the entire message concerning Jesus Christ is valid, it's true, and and in Acts chapter 17, because of the resurrection, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And the reason why, Mike, is because as far as the apostles were concerned, the judgment of God was visited upon Jesus Christ at the cross. But if you don't repent and believe in the risen Christ, then that same judgment that was visited upon Jesus Christ on the cross will be visited upon you on the day of judgment. So I just wow. wanted to point out just how central the the resurrection is in the book of Acts. Wow, great point. What a what a phenomenal point. Right. I, I was also thinking of Paul writes, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Right. This that that is, this is our hope. Right. With without it, again, nothing not, nothing matters. So so yeah, let's move to the Trinity. 
because uh, I think this is often an overlooked or or neglected idea of it, within the context of the resurrection. People, I don't think, think resurrection Trinity. Uh, how, how do you how do you tie those together? What 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 is that? What does that mean? Uh, how how do you tie what together? The Trinity and the resurrection. <laughs> yeah, who raised Jesus from the dead? Yeah, I I think you have to right. Yeah. Because if you if you think about the Trinity uh in isolation from uh the work of resurrection or any aspect of the work of redemption, you're really not thinking Christianly. When you think about when you think about the resurrection, again, the resurrection is just part of the overarching work of God. So God raises his son from the dead, right? Even as Acts chapter 2 says, and in Psalm, Psalm 16, he will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay, right? He, he rose him from the dead, specifically as the scriptures had foretold, it's 1 Corinthians 15, and, and if you don't think of this in Trinitarian fashion, you're not understanding that every single aspect of the life of Jesus and every single aspect of our redemption is Trinitarian from beginning to end. And, you know, we're, we're going to be doing uh, episodes on the Trinity. But um, let me just say from the outset that Christian theology, uh, Christian worship, uh, Christian living, and Christian thinking— in the Christian worldview, we always need to raise the bar as far as being self-consciously Trinitarian, to understand the Father's role in the raising of His Son, to understand the Spirit's role in raising His Son, and to understand that Jesus, um, by virtue of His own power, of course, He has the right to raise himself from the dead. But in every aspect of Christian theology, if we're, not, if we're not thinking in a Trinitarian fashion, we're just not really interfacing with the God of the Bible. Wow. Yeah, let me, let me throw some, some text out for us. You know, in the context of the, of the Father, Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for death death to hold him. We already quoted John 10, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and I take it up again, right? We have the Father, we have the Son. Um, John 2, you know, also talks about that, 2.19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days, what? I'll, I'm going to build it up again. And John then writes, he's speaking of the temple of his body, right? We have the Father, we have the Son. Romans chapter 1, verse, verse 4, um, <clears throat> Let me flip my page here. Uh, Romans 1 verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, right? And, and you know, we could, we could talk about Romans 1 4 and, and uh, Romans 8 11 would be another one. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, 
right? This is this is Trinitarian to the core. The the New Testament presents the resurrection in Trinitarian language, uh, ascribing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to this work. And then it goes back to our previous point: is what we just said is is this has this has profound. Uh, applications and realities and meaning for us that are in Christ. Um, you know, so I, I love that exhortation to think Trinitarian. Yeah. Yeah, no no doubt about it. And those texts that you read there, I mean, th- those are so important. And, and particularly that passage out of Romans 8 that you mentioned in terms of you know, uh, the spirit that that dwells in us is the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. What what that shows us is that there is an organic continuity between the risen Christ, the work of the Spirit in raising the Son, and the work of the Spirit in raising and vivifying believers in giving us life. And so, when really when we're thinking about the resurrection, Mike. We're really in eschatological territory. When we're thinking about the resurrection. We are in the realm of eschatology. That is what the resurrection is. The resurrection is the mode of life, and the resurrection is also the sphere of the spirit. And so the presence of the spirit in connection with the resurrection and the son, and now here, believers. It just reminds us that the role that the the Spirit plays is the role of a new creation. It is the role of creator. It is the role of regenerator. It is the role of of giving believers life, and and not not just life in eternity, but also life here and now. It is the Spirit who rose the Son from the dead, that gives us life every single day, that empowers us, obviously through salvation, but also in sanctification. It is the Spirit that is at work in us. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, we are led by the Spirit. And so it's so important to recognize the connection between uh, resurrection, eschatology, and the work of the Spirit. Those are all connected. That's one, in a sense, that's all one dynamic. And that's something that often we talk, you know, we began by talking about how the resurrection can be neglected. Well, these dynamics, these aspects of resurrection theology are often neglected. Again, Mike, think about it. For the typical evangelical person, right? The resurrection, yes, is connected with the Easter story. Uh, and for many people, the resurrection is a point of apologetics. I mean, how many books are written where the vast majority of the book concerning the resurrection is one argument, either from archaeology or church history or, you know, some Roman historian trying to give some credence to the idea that there's a high probability historically or through some other means that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But you know what's what's wrong with that, Mike, is that you're still not at the biblical conception of the resurrection. You're still not thinking 
Christianly about the resurrection. The resurrection is not just a proof point. It's not just an idea that we're supposed to debate and argue and try to, try to establish through apologetical arguments. And how do you know that for certain? I would, at this point, you know, we didn't talk about this aspect of it, uh, Mike, before the show, but if you look at Acts chapter 17, you know, you don't get to the resurrection and Paul's apologetics from the beginning. <laughs> Actually, you get to the resurrection, right, after a delineation of argumentation where the Apostle Paul first has to begin with the entire notion of history. In a sense, he has to reconstruct all of history for the Athenians. If they don't understand that the whole world came from one man, if they don't understand that, right? Uh, if he doesn't, if they don't, if they don't know that God created everything and everybody, <laughs> right? In verse twenty-six of Acts chapter seventeen, from one man, every nation of mankind uh, is made to live on the face of the earth. If we don't understand, in other words, redemptive history, um, then we won't understand the significance of the resurrection. Um, I, I've done this probably before on several podcasts in different contexts, but let me, just, let me just tease this out a little bit further, okay, and then we'll go on. But let's understand something here. The people that Paul is talking to in the book of Acts there, Acts chapter 17, the Athenians, these are Epicureans. These are Stoics. These are Platonic thinkers, Okay. And for both of these camps, let's say the Epicureans and the Stoics, there is no such thing as an afterlife. There's no such thing as a soul or the day of judgment or, you know, anything like that, a spirit, nothing. And so if you don't construct for these people a distinct biblical cosmology, then you have not, you don't have the framework in which the resurrection fact of history makes sense. And so it is a, this, I mean, we'll have to do, we'll just have to do an entire a podcast just on Acts 17, but um, I, I think that's important not to take us too far off, but, you know, um, I don't know, any thoughts on that? Yeah, let me, let me kind of, let me pitch something at you and you can tell me if I'm a heretic or not. Um in that context of understanding, no, you don't want to be that. <laughs> no, in the context of understanding redemptive history, we go back to the garden, right? We go back to the fall. We go back to the curse, right? This is the beginning of redemptive history. Christ defeating death ties directly to the day you eat it, you shall die, and He overcame, mm. right? When where the first Adam died, the second Adam. Well, he died, but he came back from the death, declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection, right? It, 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 it sets the whole thing correct, right? Where, where death entered, Christ overcame, mm. 
right? And that's that's the beauty where we we now mm-hmm. sit here, we look, and and that now brings us to worship. That brings us to just absolute. Mm-hmm. Absolute praise. Let me let me throw a, a verse at you that I think is important here. Romans chapter eight. Now he's Paul's just right hook, left hook question and answer throughout Romans eight. He gets here to verse thirty four. He says, "Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for for us." All right, let's talk about the, the, the priesthood of Christ because of the resurrection. Oh, for sure. I think that passage right there is a great text. That's a really, really good passage to illustrate exactly what we've been saying, that the resurrection is part of the singular work of Jesus Christ, both in his earthly and heavenly session, both in his suffering and in his in his, his suffering and dying and in his resurrection and exaltation, it shows you that this, this work of Christ cannot be, uh, it cannot be, you know, separated. It can't be torn apart. It can't be compartmentalized to the degree that these are isolated events in, 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 in an extraordinary life. Now, this is one work. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 5, uh, the entire life of Jesus is constructed as one act. Uh, there, the Apostle Paul speaks of through one act of righteousness, and that is the totality of the work of Christ. So the apostles definitely saw that Jesus' uh, entire uh, work, his person and work, everything functions as one. We can say the life, the death, burial, resurrection, the exaltation, which is what you're talking about here in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 34, the exaltation, and then his work of being our mediator, right, and the one who gives the Spirit, pours out the Spirit. This is all one inextricable work. It cannot be separated. And we actually talked a little bit about that, Maybe not to, I mean, this would take us a little bit off topic here, Mike, but we talked about this before when we did the, the section, of the, uh, or rather the podcast on the spiritual gifts. We talked about how that the uniqueness of Christ and the apostles, right? And, and the uniqueness of that time, that it's not, it's not repeatable, it's not normative. There's a reason why signs and wonders and miracle working and these kinds of things are not normative for today. Sorry, people. Um, Unfortunately, so many people, so many evangelicals, and around the world, people are walking around and having church thinking that they're going to have their own individual daily or weekly Pentecost service, (laughs) which is is absurd, because that's not what Pentecost is for. It is not a paradigm for our church service. It is the climax of redemptive history, and it cannot be repeated. Listen to this, Mike. Pentecost cannot be repeated any more than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it shows us that this is the apex of redemptive history 
the most unique climactic time in all of redemptive history. And when people try to argue for their own private Pentecostal moments, they really cheapen the work of Christ, sadly. Because Pentecost belongs to this dual estates, this resurrection life, this exaltation, this work of, of the mediator who intercedes for us at the right hand of God. And, you know, what's remarkable is, uh, well, whatever people's position is on the author of Hebrews, but that verse right there that you just read is a great parallel to how the Apostle Paul and the book of Hebrews, they really speak with one voice. And, uh, and I think that's great. Anytime you can see overlap like that, where a lot of theologians would try to separate the two corpuses, if you would, the writing of Paul and the writing of Hebrews to say, these are different authors, different styles, different focus. But here you have the, uh, Paul sounding exactly like Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know if you want to add to that, but (laughs) yeah, actually, let me backtrack a little because I was actually thinking this in the sense of the Catholic Church too, right? They they cheapen it as they have this so-called priest, this earthly mediator, in their celebration of the the communion service. They believe the priest brings Christ down from heaven, re-crucifies him. In the in the elements and blessing of the elements, right? As impart, I mean, what a what a cheapening of every. I mean, everything we've been talking about here, but in the context of Christ being our interceding on behalf before the tribunal of God on our behalf, right? And He says right before that Romans eight thirty three, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. If, if they can't bring a charge against Christ, they can't bring a charge against us. Because we have a great high priest who stands, ministering, now we're going into Hebrews, ministering daily. You, you know, like, or not, he's, uh, sorry, I, I misquoted that. Who, a great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Not like a great high priest of old who is standing, ministering daily, offering repeated sacrifices over and over and sure. over again that didn't, that didn't accomplish anything. Christ, where he sits on our right, behalf, right. is our intercession always be before God. What a what a miraculous, miraculous truth. Amelia, let me can I can I yeah. move this on to a little yeah. bit of application for us? Right? Let's let's bring this into the context of, yeah. of us now. Well, before you do that, before you do that, Mike. Let me just say one last thing here on, because you raised the issue of the resurrection and the priesthood of Christ, and I think it's important for us uh, to situate the resurrection also in its Old Testament context, right? That what we saw in the Old Testament by virtue of the burnt offerings, for example, and the, you know, many of the the priestly rituals like, uh, you know, Leviticus chapter 23, for example, where it talks about the harvest and the first fruits and the priests being directed to take up the sheaves and wave them in the air is indicative of the fact that there is a mighty harvest coming 
the first fruits were, in fact, that very thing. They were indicative of the coming resurrection, which is, you know, that's, that's what we talked about. In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the first fruits of that harvest, of that ultimate resurrection. But as we think about his priesthood, we also recognize that Jesus is not just the high priest that brings the offering of God's people, makes atonement. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we are told that Christ actually is himself a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And the reason I mention the Old Testament is because that right there tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment, the antitype, the reality, not the shadow, but the reality of all those Old Testament Levitical priestly uh, type sacrifices, many of them burnt offerings. And as the sacrifice was burnt and the offering ascended as a fragrant aroma, it was a symbol of Christ who would be sacrificed but would somehow ascend. And now we know that ascent was through the resurrection. So I just, I just wanted to say something about the Old Testament uh, in connection with our thoughts concerning Jesus and his priesthood and the resurrection. So, Amen. I mean, what a great, I mean, that puts it in historical, biblical, historical, you know, context for us. These aren't, these aren't disconnected topics. You know, we don't yeah. unhitch the yeah, Old yeah. Testament, right? This is, this is all yep. one cohesive story pointing to Christ and everything he, he did and he, who he is right now, the fact that he sits before God on our behalf by his very presence we now find confidence. So let's let's move to categories of justification. We've already touched on this a little bit. Sanctification and glorification. And if I could kind of frame our conversation here, I'm going to read from the, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, point 45. It says, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? And it breaks it up into three parts. It says, first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second point, by his power, we too are already raised to new life. Already raised to new life. Point three, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Right? What a, what a simplistic, beautiful way to talk about our justification, the current process of sanctification that we're going in, and the guarantee of our of our glorification. So, Amelia, why don't you kind of kind of go off on those themes for just a little bit? Yeah, justification, sanctification, glorification are all tied to the resurrection. In Romans chapter four, uh, Romans chapter four ends with this idea that Jesus, who was delivered for our trespasses, was raised for our justification. And obviously, the reason he was raised for our justification is because, again, the resurrection is the exclamation point by the Father, exclaiming that he accepts and receives 
the offering of his son, and because it is acceptable to him, the father raises him from the dead. And that is the surest proof that our deliverance, our redemption, and our justification is secured. Basically, our righteousness. And so, uh, very important for the doctrine of justification, but it's also important for sanctification because, as Romans 8 tells us, that it's the same Spirit at work in us right now that powerfully worked in the life of Christ to raise him from the dead. And we could say that, you know, the Spirit's role uh, in, in sanctification is so important, but, I mean, really, the Spirit is involved in every aspect of our, of our redemption, every aspect. Because that same chapter in Romans 8 then moves on to talk about how the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. But, but really, this idea here that the Spirit of God is working in us now, in the same Spirit that rose Jesus, again, it just illustrates this idea that there's an organic connection between the work of the Spirit and the raising of His Son and the work of the Spirit as He, as he moves in the lives of believers. And it is that same exact eschatological power that is at work, and in terms of of, of uh, glorification, of course, the resurrection is our, res- our glorification come to completion. Uh, everybody knows that, you know, uh, in terms of the believer right now, when you die, you go into an intermediate state, you go into the presence of Christ, but you're not there permanently in that state. The intermediate state is temporary. Therefore, we are awaiting the resurrection to bring glorification to its absolute consummate form. And uh, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you know, we don't want to be disembodied. We don't want to be unclothed. We don't want to be without a body. We were, that's unnatural. We're not created to have, to be bodiless, to be incorporeal, incorporeal. We were created by God in, as his image, the image of God, we were created both body and soul. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures that we will attain to a bodily resurrection and reach the telos of our own existence. So that's, you know, that's super important for, for understanding how the resurrection sort of contributes to the totality of our redemption and the application of redemption. Wow, what a great point. I I heard Kevin DeYoung say this, and I don't even remember. I kind of scribbled it down because it was relevant to our topic. But he said, the resurrection means that the death of Jesus was enough. Right? The resurrection means that the death of Jesus was enough. It was enough to accomplish our our, our, our justification, sanctification, glory. It, It brings us all the way the way home, right? And <clears throat> let me let me kind of talk pastorally, right? We're we're pastors. We work with people, you know, struggling with sin, uh, you know, on a, on a daily basis. Is there is there hope for us this side of heaven to be to be to not sound cliche overcomers, 
right? To 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 be the to be the Christians that aren't just perpetually struggling over and over and over again with without hope. What is what is the resurrection offer us as pastors? How do we communicate that to to our people? Well, sure. I mean, the resurrection obviously is lived out both positionally and also practically. On the positional level, right, we recognize that we have been raised with Christ, our union with Christ, and so that our own future resurrection is secure. But also practically, um, it is that that resurrection life is at work in us now. And if we avail ourselves, that's the thing, if we avail ourselves to the work of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, then we, can, then we are given this glorious uh, uh, comfort and assurance that indeed we will have the power that we need to win the war uh, against the wages of sin, to persevere. That, that doesn't mean you won't sin. That doesn't mean that, uh, as the Westminster Confession would say, you cannot still wound your conscience or that you cannot be in a season of sin or whatever, but that you still have as a believer, because of the resurrection of Jesus, you have the principle of the power of that resurrection available to you through the Spirit. Now, here's the thing, Mike, I think you raise a really important issue here, because for a lot of folks, they might interpret that guiding them and leading them and directing them to the to the things of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. But for a lot of folks, they think that what we're talking about right now is that they need to have some sort of spiritual experience, which often translates into you need to have some kind of emotional experience. You need to have some kind of supernatural experience. You need to have some kind of mountaintop experience, or you know, you're not going to make it in Christianity. Uh, but actually, the Spirit works through remarkably normative means. And so where the, where the operations of the Spirit are mostly found in the Christian life are in the normative means of grace that God ordains for us, which is, of course, word and sacrament. It is, of course, participating of the means of grace, sitting under the preaching of the Word of God, personal Bible study, uh, being involved to uh, being involved in fellowship in a local church, participating in the Lord's Supper and baptism. These are the normative means of grace that God, through His Spirit, has ordained for us. And in that, as we abide and as we remain there, as we pursue these normative means of grace, that's not to say that we're never going to have an emotional experience with God. That's not to say that we're never going to. Uh, it have what Jonathan Edwards called extraordinary seasons of mercy. Sure, we can have that, but but we're not really in the sense, we're not really to direct people, go looking for that, because then we're setting people up for failure. Now we're setting people up to go, to, to live the Christian life on the basis of these extraordinary experiences with which more oftentimes than not, really are, are, are fraudulent. And often they're shot through with our own sin and with our own, uh, with our own power and our own strength, and we're sort of drumming up or generating some emotional and ecstatic experience 
in the hope that through that emotional ecstatic experience, we'll have the therapeutic, uh, the therapeutic experience that we need to cope with sin, Satan, and the devil. But really what we need is the fruit of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. We need the virtues of the Spirit. And I've often put it like this, Mike, what we need and what the, in a sense, what is the fruit of the Spirit, singular? How many times have you heard people say, these are the fruits, plural, of the Spirit? But really, in reality, the text says the fruit, singular, of the Spirit, not plural. What is the singular work of the Spirit, and how do we walk in that? And I think that, you know, obviously, we're talking about so many topics here, Mike, but deserving of their own show, but I think it is that we turn people to the resources that the Spirit has provided for us in the normative means of grace. So something like that is where I would go with it. Yeah, what a great point. You know, as pastors, we're often not asking very profound questions. We're asking very simple, basic questions to the person in our office who is is habitually struggling is, are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Are you are you fellowshipping? Right. Are you, you know, it, it's not, we're not telling them, go seek some mystic clothed in a Christian, you know, garment. That, that's, no, just do what the Bible simply tells you to do is, I love how you said that, that natural means of grace that God has established in his church, that in that, it's it's so simplistic, yeah. right? I think that's where people get annoyed at. They're like, no, I'm looking for something more. Tell me how many, you know, how many things I need to do? What, what, what stones do I need to go sit in the sun? And, and that's what people, they're seeking the mystical experience. Yeah. And it's so profoundly simple. Um, it's almost insulting, right? Yeah. Like this is just, hey, read your Bible. That's, that's how you overcome. Pray. That's how you overcome. Yeah. Well, Miller, let me. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, I mean, the, you know, well, no, I was just going to say it's been said, you know, uh, the key to Christianity is that there is no key, right? In a sense, uh, there's no silver bullet, right? There's, you'll never attain to some super Christian stat- status, some hyper-spiritual status that will ever alleviate the tension of living between the ages, so to speak, the present evil age and the age to come. There will always be a war, a battle. There will always be tension. There will always be struggle. And if you're looking for some miracle pill from the Bible, it just doesn't exist. You just have to abide in the means of grace and, and trust in the promises of God to sustain you and to empower you even as you, uh, even as you seek to, uh, you know, be pleasing, like Paul says, be pleasing to him in all respects. So, yeah. Was it Spurgeon that said a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to a person that isn't? It might not be Spurgeon, I'll go but with we'll, that. We'll, we'll say it was Spurgeon. <laughs> um, 
I'll go with that. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll run with it. All right. Hey, let me let me throw a text at you because this I think this ties. I mean, we, we've we've hit on every point we wanted to hit on. Uh, you know, talking about eschatology, our, our future hope, our future glorification, the practical aspect of sanctification, the legal declaration of justification. Um, let's go to First Corinthians chapter fifteen. We're gonna. I'm just gonna read verses 42 sure. through 49 here. <clears throat> Paul writes this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body. There is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spirit that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven and was the man of dust, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What an incredible passage. Amelia, can you tell me, tell me what that means? Unpack that for me. <laughs> Well, I don't think I can. We've got about two minutes before we have to end this <laughs> podcast. But <laughs> I mean, we can do an extended jumbotron kind of version here. But <laughs> uh, man, this this text right here, obviously, is super super important for understanding uh, not just uh, the concept of resurrection, the role of the spirit, but really the entirety of re- of, of the plan of redemption, as Paul says that. There in verse 49, we've borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, but we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ, or the second Adam. And so this shows us that, in fact, the first Adam, who became a living being, right, in a sense, was a natural man. He didn't, ha- he didn't attain to the spiritual body. To attain to the spiritual body, you have to be in Christ, you have to receive the life that the second Adam gives. You have to receive the the life-giving power of what Paul calls here uh, Christ who becomes the life-giving spirit. And um, the ESV has a lowercase s uh, here to translate pneuma. But really, the best of theologians have interpreted that as an uppercase s this is a passage that illustrates the complete and total functional unity between the Holy Spirit and Christ upon his resurrection. That upon the resurrection, Christ has re- reassumed, as it were, perfect, total, functional unity with the Holy Spirit, such that he now gives life. He, in a sense, is the Spirit in that resurrected mode that gives life to his people, even as God gave life to Adam in the garden. And so it just reminds us that uh, the resurrection is telling us that we are designed to bear the image of the heavenly man. And so 
The resurrection is an eschatological advancement. It tells us how, in fact, man is going to progress. You know, we live in a world of a lot of technology. We live in a world of extreme uh, uh, technological advancement. And the language of progress is everywhere. And the question of how is mankind going to go to the next level? How are they going to evolve to the next level? That's the kind of language you hear in the world. Well, we know how man, in a sense, advances, not through evolution, and certainly not through technology, but man goes to a higher quality of life, man enters into a higher form of life through the Spirit and through the resurrection. And something like that is what the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 is trying to get at. So, I think that's a good place probably to uh, maybe uh, give out some resources. What do you think? Yeah, shoot. I, I know that for people, um, if you're wondering about, well, where can I really get some good resources on the resurrection? Well, uh, you know, there's a, there's a few resources that I want to recommend. There's one that's really good. It's by David Gardner. It's called Sons in the Sun, and that has a lot to do with adoption, but there's also significant sections there about the resurrection. Uh, also, obviously, um, a smaller volume is going to be a volume by Richard Gaffin called Resurrection and Redemption, which is a tremendously helpful little book because it will really help to kind of untangle um, and explain and interpret a much, much deeper book on the resurrection, which is Gerhardus Voss's book, The Pauline Eschatology, where the Pauline Eschatology really tackles 1 Corinthians 15, this section that we interacted with a little bit, really tackles that at a much, much deeper level. And also, there's a book by a friend of ours, uh, Lane Tipton and Jeff Waddington, at least the partial editors there of that book, but it's called Resurrection and Eschatology. Now, that is a tremendous book as well, uh, dealing with resurrection themes. So those would be some really good ones. Obviously, anything you can read by Herman Bavink in his Reform Dogmatics on the resurrection is going to be really good as well. But uh, yeah, great man, great show, Mike. Good to be with you again, brother. Thanks so much. That was a that was a really um, a fascinating uh, episode and a subject that ought, I mean we can do multiple episodes on this, but. God bless you, brothers. Good seeing you again. God bless, brother.